Good morning. Um, as Chris said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's a privilege to be with you this morning and to open up God's Word together. Uh, this week we're continuing in our fall sermon series entitled Supper with Friends, a study of meals with Jesus. We have two weeks left this week and next. Uh, last week, Daniel looked at Jesus' last meal before his death, uh, referred to normally as the Last Supper. And this week, we'll be looking at Jesus' first and only meal after his death, after the resurrection. It's not much of a meal, so don't blink. You might miss it, but I think there's a lot that we need to see and hear in this text. As is our custom, I ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word if you are able. This morning, we're in Luke chapter 24. We're going to be reading... Fairly lengthy text, verses 13 through 35. This is God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village, two disciples named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that you would allow us to hear from you and be transformed. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A few months ago, I had plans to attend a meeting at the Summit Church. You may have heard of it. And this meeting was scheduled to start at 6.15 p.m. And I just knew that the traffic was going to be a mess coming from Durham, so I planned accordingly. I gave myself a 10-minute buffer to make sure that I could be there on time. And on my way, I hit a little bit of traffic, but I was feeling good. I think I'm going to make it on time. I've planned accordingly. And when I pulled up to the building, my clock said 6.10. Booyah. Made it on time, which is not my greatest quality. But as I began to look for a parking place, that's when the trouble began. I couldn't figure out where to park. And this place is huge. It's as big as the Vatican. I think I might have even seen the Pope when I was there. And my plan was just to follow this stream of people. And I was going to park there and where they parked and walk where they walked and went in the door that they walked in. But there was no cars in the parking lot. It's like a ghost town. And I thought, wait a minute. Maybe Summit people are like Christ Central people. They're just always 15 minutes late and it'll be fine. I'll just wait until they all get here. But I waited and I waited and nobody came. Nobody came. So I started to panic. I texted my friend who had invited me to the meeting and said, hey, is, is the meeting on? Does it start at 6.15? My friend texted me back. Three words, and they hit me like a ton of bricks. Blue Ridge Campus. You see, the summit, they meet everywhere, everywhere. And I was at the Briar Creek campus. I was supposed to be at the Blue Ridge campus. So I pulled out my phone, and I wanted to see what the damage might be. I'll never forget what it said. ETA, 33 minutes. It didn't even take me 33 minutes to get there in the first place, so... To say that I was upset would be an understatement. I was extremely frustrated. I think we can all relate to that. Frustration is a part of life, amen? I was hanging out with a group of friends last week, and we were sharing some of our frustrations, and one of them made this comment. He said, frustration is the difference between our expectations and our experience. Isn't that good? Frustration is the difference between our expectations and our experience. I was frustrated because I had expected to arrive at my meeting on time. I had expected when Siri said, you have arrived, that she would be telling me the truth. But if I had had expectations of a 50-minute commute, I wouldn't have been frustrated. I would have been prepared for that. I might have even planned accordingly and left earlier, but... Since I didn't have the right expectations, my frustration went through the roof. The reason that this is significant, the reason that I want to start here is because the problem with frustrations is if they become too great, we lose hope. We give up. When I saw that my ETA was 33 minutes, I was forced to make a decision. Was I going to press on? Was I going to get back in the traffic? Or was my frustration too great? Was it hopeless, and should I just head back home? 
Our text this morning is about two men whose expectations did not match their experience. About two men whose frustrations had become too great, and therefore they gave up. Look again with me at our text. I think it's easy for us to just gloss over the first 15 verses because we know how it ends. But I want us to engage with these two disciples a little bit. Although Cleopas is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible and his companion is left unnamed, I think we know a lot about these men. I think it's safe to assume that these men, these disciples, had given up everything to follow Jesus. They were all in. Verse 21, they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But then verse 21 reveals that the hope is now gone. What happened? It doesn't take a biblical scholar to see what's going on here. The one that they had put their hope in is dead. He died. The one upon which everything hinged is gone. And the disciples, they had certain expectations about Jesus, about this man. And on Calvary, those expectations were shattered into a thousand pieces. And so they lost hope. Luke captures this hopelessness so well in verse 17. Jesus is asking them, hey, what are you guys talking about? In verse 17, they stood still looking sad. Have you ever been so sad, so hopeless that you can't even speak? That's how deep the hopelessness had gotten. What's the big deal? So Jesus is dead, so what? We have to take a minute to put ourselves in the shoes of these disciples. Life is hard in first century Israel. The Roman Empire has taken over and the Jewish people are basically just trying to survive. They're just trying to make it. But then comes this man, Jesus, and the first words out of his mouth are that he has come to proclaim good news to the poor. He's come to set the captives free, to recover sight to the blind. He's talking about new wineskins, new hearts, a kingdom marked by justice for the poor, equality for all people, a society marked by love. That's what's at stake for the disciples. That's what they were hoping for. And then Jesus is gone. And along with it, all of his silly promises of a new world. Can you taste the hopelessness that they might have felt? I wonder how many of you can relate. I wonder how many of you resonate with the hopelessness of these men. How many of you, like the disciples, had hoped that Jesus was the one and your your experience has not lived up to those expectations? Let me make it plain for you. you. You look around And you still see poverty, you still see violence, you still see injustice and hatred and evil and abuse. And so you wonder, maybe Nietzsche was right, maybe God is dead. Or let me make it personal. You'd hoped that God would provide for you and you can't find a job or a place to stay. You'd hoped that God would care for you and yet you're still waiting for a spouse and you can't seem to endure the loneliness. You'd hope that God would bless you, but 10 years later, still no child. You'd hope that God would bring healing, that your child is sick, your mother is gone, or your doctor just found a lump. You'd hope that God was with you, and yet you failed that class. You didn't make the team. You can't beat this addiction. You'd hope that God would protect you, and yet somehow the abuse still happened just the same. 
are essential if we're honest, we had hoped. Amen? We had hoped. So what do we do with all this hopelessness? What our text reveals is maybe the problem is not in our experience, but rather in our expectations. See, the disciples, they had inputted the wrong campus into their GPS. They had wrong expectations, which is why when their experience didn't match up, they lost hope. But Jesus' point is, is that their experience was actually spot on. It's just not what they were expecting, so they missed it. Church, we are in grave danger of having the wrong expectations and therefore like the disciples missing the experience entirely. My hope this morning is to recalibrate our expectations so that our expectations will match our experience in the world so that ultimately we can live as ones who engage this world with a profound sense of hope because that's what we're called to as followers of Christ. That's my introduction. Do we, do we need a break? <laughs> a musical interlude maybe? Are you guys with me? I've got two points this morning. Appropriate expectations and appropriate experience. Look with me again at the text, verse 19. What we see here is this accurate explanation from the disciples of the events concerning Jesus that had happened over the past couple of days. Everything that they report is true. The only problem is it wasn't the experience they were expecting. But what were the disciples expecting? What were they expecting concerning Jesus? Well, at baseline level, they were expecting Jesus not to die. We can see that. They didn't think he was going to die. But more than that, what we know from this and other texts is that the disciples were expecting Jesus to be the redeemer, to be the new Moses, to liberate God's people from Roman oppression, much like Mo Moses did for God's people when they were slaves in Egypt. You see, in their eyes, the redeemer was supposed to conquer the Roman Empire, not be conquered by it. But that was not Jesus' plan. Which begs the question, how did the disciples get so confused about Jesus' plan? I mean, these guys spent all this time with Jesus. They watched his every move. They were hanging on his every word. How did they miss it? I think what the text reveals is that the disciples were allowing their expectations about the Redeemer to be set by the world and not by God's revelation. So important. What do I mean? One of the major themes of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is coming to inaugurate a new kingdom, a kingdom in which he is the king of kings, the ruler over all creation. But this was to be no ordinary kingdom. And this is where the disciples got confused. They heard Jesus talk about being king in this kingdom, and they couldn't help but envision Jesus like the kings of their day. So they thought Jesus was going to overthrow the current king, which was Caesar. And there was a big battle that was going to happen, and Jesus was going to kick tail and take names, and, and everybody was going to bow before him, and Jesus was going to establish a new kingdom where all of God's people got what they wanted and what they needed. All of a sudden, Israel was going to be blessed. But that's not what Jesus was coming to do. And over the next 10 verses, Jesus gives the disciples, the insight they need in order to have right expectations. He says there's two keys here that you need to the disciples and that we need as disciples of Jesus. 
so that our expectations can be right, so we don't get lost in what the world says about Jesus, but we can look and see what Jesus says about himself. The two keys that, is, that are highlighted in this text that open a door to encounter Jesus are the word and the sacraments. The word and the sacraments. Look again at verse 25. Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. As a parent, I can relate with this line. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you should have known better because you were told over and over again. But instead of holding this against the disciples for missing it, for missing what was obvious, Jesus does something strange here. He conducts a Bible study. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Don't miss the weightiness of this. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, raised from the dead, pulls out his Bible to teach the disciples. Why not just tell them what's up? Why not just give them from his mouth what they needed? But he pulls out his Bible. I love this quote by Dinsdale Young. He says, I should have imagined that the risen Lord would be independent of the Bible. But no, he cleaves to it with an old affection. He came up from the grave and hastened to the holy book. But why? Because Jesus is preparing them and us for when he's gone. Jesus knows that he can't walk the Emmaus Road with all his disciples, with all of us, but rather he left us with his book. Spoiler alert, it's all about him. Verse 31 says, And he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I love this. Jesus just up and disappeared from their presence. He vanished. And after the miraculous, supernatural disappearance of Jesus, what is it the disciples can't, talk, can't stop talking about? When he opened the word to them. The revelation of the scripture. They don't talk about the miracle. They talk about how God showed them himself in this book. Do we realize what a gift this book is? It's unique. It's not just the place we learn about Jesus, but rather the place we encounter Jesus himself. Through the power of the Spirit, when we open this book, we are encountering Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He is showing us all that is written about himself. He's leading us to himself. I confess, as I studied this week, I was reflecting on my own life and the times when my heart has burned while opening the scriptures. And I was saddened about how rare that has been as of late. But throughout this week, as I studied and prayed, my expectations began to shift a little. I began to believe again a little bit more that this book really is the doorway to encountering Jesus. Do you believe that? I hope and pray that you leave today believing that a little bit more, that you expect to encounter Jesus when you open this book. The second key that Jesus gives us to encounter him is the sacrament. Look again at verse 28. 
says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Imagine for many of you, this language is eerily familiar because you hear it every single week when you come to this church, when we come to this table. Every week we repeat the words of Jesus from the Last Supper. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. St. Augustine says no one should doubt that his being recognized, Jesus being recognized in the breaking of the bread is the sacrament, which brings us together in recognizing him. Once again, Jesus is doing something much bigger than enlightening these two men. He is instructing the church. He's instructing us for what we are to do after he is gone. He's saying, you are to meet me here. Notice the verb tense in 31. It says, and their eyes were opened. It's not that Jesus broke the bread and then all of a sudden they remembered the story of the Last Supper. The verb is passive here. It says their eyes were opened. The opening was not their own doing, but rather it was done to them. The Holy Spirit opened their eyes to see Jesus at the table. In order to have right expectations about Jesus, we must know where to go to encounter him, where he has revealed himself to us. The truth is that for close to 2,000 years, the church has been bound to this book and this table because God has promised to meet us here at both places. And so in order to have right expectations about who Jesus really is, we must come to the word. We must come to the sacrament, trusting that we will meet with him here. So that's where we go. But let's look at our text. What do they encounter about Jesus? What, do they, what is revealed to them about who Jesus is that helps to reshape the way they experience the world? Because what we're going to see at the end is that they leave with a profound hope. So something happens as they encounter Jesus in his word and at the table. When they encounter Jesus, two things are revealed to them that they had completely missed before. First, we serve a crucified savior. And second, we serve a resurrected savior. Now that may seem obvious and simple for many of you, but the disciples completely missed it. And I wonder how many of us actually believe that. We serve a crucified savior and a resurrected savior. Let's look first at this idea of a crucified savior. The disciples were right to hope for the Redeemer to come, but they lost hope in the Redeemer because the Redeemer died. Because how in the world can a dead man bring liberation? But look at verse 26. Jesus says, Oh foolish ones, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus' point is that, in fact, only a dead Redeemer can bring resurrection, can bring liberation. Leviticus 17, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, the disciples missed the fact that the Redeemer comes to redeem. And redemption assumes that a debt must be paid. Romans 4 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
The disciples failed to realize that they had sin that needed to be dealt with, that punishment was in order. But the good news is we serve a crucified Savior who on the cross took that punishment on himself. Do you believe that? Jesus went to the cross to pay your debt, my debt, so that when we come to God, he can declare over us your debt has been paid in full. Amen? If the disciples knew this, they would have not skipped town after the crucifixion, but rather thrown the party of all parties. Look at what Christ has done for us. Not only did the disciples miss the fact that as followers of Christ, we serve a crucified Savior. They also miss the fact that we serve a resurrected Savior. Before this Emmaus encounter, the disciples had completely lost hope. The vision of a world put to right had gone down the drain. But look again at verse 33. It says, immediately following this encounter, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. When you read the, the gospel of Luke, the whole movement of the gospel is toward Jerusalem, the place where this movement will begin. And yet after the crucifixion, the disciples leave. They skip town, probably headed home to start a new life, utterly defeated. They had no concept of resurrection so they could see nothing positive coming out of Jesus' death. And yet immediately after they encounter the resurrected Christ, that same hour, the text says, they head back into town, back into Jerusalem, hope restored. Because maybe, just maybe, Jesus is the one to redeem Israel. So often we as Christians focus all our interest on the cross. We ignore the resurrection. But the truth is there's no real hope to be had unless our crucified Savior actually rose victoriously from the grave. Because there he conquered sin and death. I wonder how the disciples would have behaved if they had believed that Christ was going to rise from the grave three days later. Can you imagine the excitement and expectation those three days would have been filled with? I want to conclude by bringing this full circle and leaving you with some final thoughts on how these right expectations should produce hope in us. The disciples lost hope because they had inappropriate expectations about who Jesus was. Yet Jesus graciously reminded them that God has given them and us the keys to encounter Jesus. He's reminded them to come here and here and that when we encounter Jesus there, we realize that we serve a crucified and risen Savior. So what? What is it about those re that realization of a crucified and risen Savior that enables us to engage this hopeless world with profound hope? First, when we recognize that we serve a crucified Savior, this validates our experience of brokenness in this world. Because the cross declares that the world is not as it should be. And we know that to be true. There is wrong in this world and it still needs to be made right. But the cross says that God is on mission to do just that, to make the world right again to redeem all of creation. So when we experience injustice, evil, suffering, we have hope because we serve a God who has waged war against these things. And more than that, we begin to realize that this war is costly 
And God has invited us in to be a part of this war, that it hurts, that the pathway to this new world full of peace, joy, and hope is the way of the cross. It's the way of suffering. And so we join Jesus on the way of the cross, on the way of suffering. One of the most fascinating things about church history is how many of the early disciples were martyred for their faith. These same disciples that we read about that, that, that skipped town, that gave up, that lost hope after they encountered the resurrected, crucified Savior, they came back on mission and they gave their very lives because they had profound hope in what was to come. I hope that as you encounter Jesus more and more, that you'll realize that your suffering is not wasteful. That you serve a God who's not immune to your suffering, that he has tasted your suffering and more. And may that give you hope in the midst of great suffering. Not only does the fact that we serve a crucified Savior give us hope, but also the fact that we serve a resurrected Savior. Immediately following our text, Jesus appears to the 11, his chosen disciples. And what's really interesting is that the 11 have a hard time believing that it's really Jesus. Verse 37 says, they thought they saw a spirit. They thought they saw a ghost. And they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus had come back. And, and Jesus is trying to go out of his way here to, to re reveal to them that he has been resurrected. A bodily resurrection, not just spiritual and so he shows them his hands and his feet. And we can imagine that he shows them the actual wounds in his hands and the wounds in his feet. And he says, touch me. And they touch him and they still can't believe. And then, and then he says, who's got something to eat? And they give him something to eat. And as he eats this broiled fish, they finally begin to believe that truly Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. That a bodily resurrection has happened What's going on here? Jesus is, is demonstrating here the importance of the redemption of the physical world, that God is planning to redeem the earth, not just destroy it, as we often think, to fix what is broken, to make all things new. I love how N.T. Wright says it. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from the earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with life of heaven. That after all, that is what the Lord's prayer is all about. Church, the fact that we have a resurrected Savior gives us hope because it is a foretaste of what is to come, both for us and this world. It's a reminder that all is not lost, but that it will be made right, that heaven is coming to earth, and we get to be a part of that. One more quote from N.T. Wright. It says, people who believe in the resurrection and making and God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world now. Serving a resurrected Savior gives us immeasurable hope that one day this world will be perfect again. Our text this morning is a much needed reminder that suffering abounds because the world is not as it should be. And the world that we live in, this post-Christian, post-modern, enlightened world has decided that the only explanation is that God must be dead. How easy it is in the face of great suffering to believe just that. But I charge you today to use the keys to encounter the real Jesus and that you will find that God is dead 
But on the third day, he rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He is interceding on your behalf, and he is making all things new. Would those expectations give us hope? Hope that enables us to endure suffering. Hope that enables us to enjoin Jesus in fighting to bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would meet us here. I don't know what people are experiencing today. I don't know what kind of suffering they are going through. I don't know how deep the hopelessness is. I do know how easy it is to believe and to be convinced that you are dead, that you're not real, that you haven't sent your son, that we don't have a crucified and resurrected Savior. Father, I pray that we would heed your instruction, that we would come to your word, come to your table and meet your son, Jesus. Meet the crucified and resurrected Savior and that he would give us hope that we might be able to face the suffering that swallows us up and believe that you are making all things new. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.